great time. So check those things out. Let's turn back over to the book of Galatians. Last night I started sharing about the cross and trying to explain what the cross really stands for. There's 28 times that that word is used in the New Testament. Twelve of those times it's talking about the physical instrument that Jesus was crucified on. Six times Jesus spoke about denying yourself and taking up your cross. And there's ten times that Paul used it. And then there's a number of other times that the word crucified or crucifixion is used to refer to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important because the word cross has become like a religious cliche and people talk about it and don't understand what that means. But we use the verse, we used a number of verses, but in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 14, Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And he wasn't talking here about glorying in the physical instrument of crucifixion. He was referring to what Jesus did for him. And this is the dominant use of the word cross, especially in the epistles. And when a person talks about Jesus dying for us, with many people that's just like a historical fact, but they don't know what it means. But the Lord paid everything for us. He didn't just pay a token. He didn't just give us enough to put us over the hump, to help us. We were doing fairly good, but it wasn't enough, and so Jesus made up the difference. No, Jesus came and paid it all. He didn't pay part of it. He paid it all. And the suffering that Jesus suffered on the cross paid for our sins completely. There is nothing that we can add to it. And I talked about this quite a bit last night. I also emphasize that this excludes boasting. When you understand the cross properly, it means that we were totally destitute of saving ourselves, and we had to depend upon God 100%. And I used Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Let me use another verse here out of Galatians chapter 5. And also, let me just say that this, it, this same principle is referred to by many different things in uh, Paul's writings. When he talks about law versus grace, he's still talking about this same thing. There's a lot of different terminologies. But I'm trying to get it to where when we think about the cross and read these verses about the cross, that we get the full impact and the true understanding of what Paul is communicating. And if we re really understood this, it would transform our relationship with him. In Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 11, I'm breaking right into the middle of some things. But he says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. The cross is offensive if it's understood properly. Now again, we've used it as a religious cliche and we just use it to refer to Jesus coming to this earth not understanding the full impact of what that meant. And you will hear people stand up and preach about the old rugged cross, I'll cling to it, and then they'll stand up and say, unless you live holy, God won't answer your prayers. God won't move in your life. And what they're doing is voiding the cross. Matter of fact, if I can talk fast enough, I probably won't get there tonight, but if I can talk fast enough, you'll find in uh, Philippians chapter 3 where it says that they are enemies of the cross. And he was talking about preachers 
who were preaching that you have to be holy and if you don't do things right, God won't answer your prayers. If you start tying God's goodness and His answers to prayer to your goodness, then you are actually the enemy of the cross, is what it says in Philippians chapter 3. I'll be explaining that in more detail whenever I can get over there. But this is talking about that the cross, if it's understood properly, is offensive to people. And did you know what the Greek word for offense is here in this verse? It's a, it's a word that scandalon is the word, and it's literally where we get the word scandal from. Scandal is just a transliteration of this Greek word, and it says the scandal, the offense of the cross ceases if you preach circumcision. Now, I'm going to explain that more in just a second, but let me say this. Paul said, if I yet preached circumcision, then would I not be persecuted because the offense of the cross would cease. In other words, the, word, the fact that he said, I yet preach circumcision is talking about that at one time Paul was a legalist who preached that you had to do all of these Jewish rituals to be accepted by God. He used to preach that. And he says, if I was still preaching that, I wouldn't be persecuted. You know why? Because legalists are the persecutors, not the persecuted. Paul, before he got the revelation of grace, was the one that was persecuting the Christians and killing them. Because grace, preaching that Jesus has already done it all, and it's not your goodness that makes God move. God moves in spite of who you are and not because of who you are. That is offensive to religious people who have been drilled into them that you've got to be holy and you've got to do certain things to earn God's favor in your life. That's offensive to them. And they wind up persecuting people. You know, I was out to eat with Mike and Marilyn Miller. I saw them here someplace. Where are Mike and Marilyn? Here they are. We were out to eat with them today and we were talking about some different things and he said he just typed in my name on the internet one time and... He was shocked at some of the things that came up and some of the people that some of the things that people were saying about me and stuff. And I tell you, I've had some really rotten things said about me. I hope you don't go Google me and find that out. <laughs> but did you know that you could boil all of them down to what is offensive to people is the fact that I preach that Jesus loves us even when we aren't worth being loved? that God will answer your prayer even if you have sin in your life, if you aren't perfect. That is what all of the persecution centers around, every bit of it. If you haven't been persecuted for your faith, let me just tell you, it's because you aren't operating in the grace of God and preaching the true message of the cross. If you go to preaching that Jesus paid it all, not some of it, and then you have to add to what He did to make yourself totally worthy... If you preach the true message of the cross, you're going to have people turn on you. You're going to have people criticize you. Paul is saying, if I was not preaching this grace of God, then the offense of the cross would cease. And most people today aren't being persecuted. And yet the Bible says, 2 uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you aren't being persecuted, it's because you aren't living godly. It's because you aren't preaching the true message. 
You know, if you go out and tell people that, hey, if you're good enough, then God will answer your prayer. And you just got to start being holier. And you got to do more. And you got to be this. And you got to go to church. And you got to start paying your tithes. And you got to do this and this and this. And then God will move. You know, if you preach that, people won't get mad at you and reject you. They may get condemned and they may go away because they say, I just can't live up to it. But they don't persecute you for preaching that because that's the way that the carnal man thinks. We've been trained from the time that we're little that nothing is free. It's going to cost something. You've got to do something. You've got to do something to earn this. It appeals to our natural mind. I used this verse last night, but over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they have to be spiritually discerned. With your natural mind, you do not understand grace. There isn't any role model for grace. I'm telling you that Jesus paid it all. When He died, He gave His blood, and it was the shedding of blood that caused the remission of sins. Your repentance over things, and your promising that you're going to do better, and trying harder, and adding an extra hour of Bible study doesn't purge sins. The only thing that can purge your sins is blood. And praise God that the Lord didn't demand our own blood to purge our sins. He gave us a lamb. He gave us a sacrifice. Paul said, I mean, John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He did that by the shedding of His blood on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Your repentance and your goodness and your promises to do better do not impress God. It doesn't make God love you more and it doesn't make God more prone to move in your life. Thank you for all two or three of those. Amen. And I know some of you are listening right now and you're thinking, man, you're just encouraging people to sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. If you will continue to listen... I would love to put everything in balance every single time I say it. But you know what? I, I wouldn't make this point completely if I sit here and am worried about everybody misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm just telling you that God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. It is not your goodness that makes God love you. Over in the 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, you can read and the Lord is giving a word picture about what people were like. And the Jews were saying that, you know, they were, they were uh, this chosen people and that God just loved them better than other people. And so the Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, began to give a word picture of what they were really like. And he said, you were like a baby. I was there the day that you were born. Your navel wasn't cut. You hadn't been cleaned up. You were polluted in your own blood. And you were laying in the dirt, filthy with the dirt on caked on you. And you were polluted. And he says, this is how I found you. Not cleaned up, not worthy. And he says, I still chose to love you. And he was saying all of those things in the 16th chapter to show you that God's never saved any of us because we deserved it. God didn't look down and think, man, this person is trying so hard. I've just got to accept them. Compared to God, you may be better than I am. You might be better than somebody else. But compared to what God intended us to be, the purity, the holiness that He created man with, 
Man, we have all sinned and come short of that so far that if you understood things properly, there isn't a person in here that deserved being saved. I have people come up all the time and say in some form or another, it just isn't fair. I deserve better than this. And boy, my first thought is, you don't know what you're saying. If you got what you deserved, you'd be burning in hell. You know, I used to develop pictures for a living, and we would have people come in to look at their pictures, and people, especially women, would look at this picture, and they'd say, Oh, this picture's terrible. My hair wasn't combing. I, didn't look, I wasn't smiling. And, and they would just, you know, say all these terrible things. And, I, and, you know, we used to tell them, All right, we'll reshoot it. And they'd say, Oh, no, I guess I could live with this. It really wasn't that bad. It's just a way of kind of putting themselves down, hoping that you'd come back and say, Oh, you really look good now. Don't you think this one looked nice? And they was a backhanded way of fishing for a compliment. And people, you know, women, they just say, Well, this picture doesn't do me justice. And I never had the guts to say it, but I wanted to say, Lady, you don't need justice. (laughs) You need mercy. (laughs) That's what I wanted to tell them. But people all the time are saying, it's just not fair. I've done this. And why hadn't God moved in my life? The moment you say that, you're telling me why you haven't seen the power of God in your life. Because you're demanding justice. You think there's something you've done that has earned you the favor of God. And you can't come up with that opinion by looking at Jesus. The Bible says again, Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the measuring stick that God puts you up against. People, every time they begin to start proclaiming that you've got to be holy and you've got to live right and you've got to do these things or God won't bless you and move in your life, nobody, when they start preaching that you've got to be holy, puts you up against Jesus because every one of us comes woefully short. I mean, we aren't even worthy to be compared to the holiness that Jesus had. What they will do is start comparing you with other people. And they'll start... They will, Start saying, you can't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. And they will start comparing you against somebody else. And they'll say, you got to wear your hair a certain way. you got to wear your dress down to the floor. You can't put on makeup. You can't wear jewelry. And they'll compare you to other people and they'll have things. You know, it always amazes me. I'm not against this. I'm not criticizing these people. But I said, it amazes me, these people that say that you got to dress like they did in the 1800s. To be holy. At one time, the way they dressed in the 1800s was unholy. Why did you pick that time? You know the word modest when it says modest? You know what the word modest, the Greek word that was translated modest in the New Testament, you know what it literally means? The word means moderate. It's the word we get moderate from. And the message that some people are preaching in their churches about how you got to dress and how you got to do, it's not moderate, it's extreme. They are actually drawing attention to themselves. They, it is not moderate. I believe in being modest. I believe in being moderate. But you know what? There are people that just make a big deal out of nothing. I've had people come and criticize Jamie because she wore jewelry and said that she's ungodly and just started telling me how ungodly she is and... Stuff. She didn't. She doesn't do anything ungodly. It's just she violated their religious tradition. People preach you can't wear makeup and stuff. Man, I tell them, if your barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> and if it needs two coats, give it two coats. Praise God. 
you can go extreme. You can go extreme in makeup and all of this stuff, but you know what? You can go extreme the other direction. I've actually known Pentecostals that in an effort to look like they don't have makeup, they have naturally rosy cheeks and they will put on tons of powder to make themselves look bland. That's extreme. I forgot how I got off on all that. But it was good. But see, you might look holy compared to this person who wears their dress in an unaccepted style. Or, or you, you know, there's certain schools. There's actually a Bible school here in the United States that the men have to wear their sleeves all the way down. If you show your forearm, it's ungodly. You can't wear certain colors because that's the color of the beast. They actually, this Bible school... I know this because we had to deal with some issues and somebody suggested that the Bible school they went to, this is the way they did it, and they had a ruler. And I forgot whether it was a full foot or if it was eight inches or whatever, but men and women couldn't come closer to that. And if you were talking to somebody, they had this ruler on a stick, and if you were talking, they'd come up and stick it there and see if it touched both of you at the same time. And if it did, you got a demerit. That's just stupid. How dumb can you get and still breathe? How do you relate that to what the scripture says about greet one another with a holy kiss? <laughs> now I admit there are unholy kisses and there are people that take advantage of that, but I'm saying that certainly uh, to kiss somebody you'd have to at least get closer than that ruler, amen. We have all of these religious traditions the scripture says, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You can, one of the great differences between true Christianity and religion is that religion will always deal with your outer person. True Christianity deals with the heart. God always looks on your heart. He told the Pharisees, he says, you whited sepulchers. You're like a tomb that's been whitewashed. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. And he says, you may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside it's full of all of this filth. Religion will always be about how you look, about your actions, and all of these things. And you could be as mean as a snake on the inside. Matter of fact, many, most legalists are. They're very judgmental. They're very condemning. And they will sit there and say things that are so contrary to the way Jesus would treat a person. But they don't care about that. They don't care what you're like on the inside as long as you dress the way that they want you to dress and as long as you come to their services. I've actually heard people before say, I don't care what they live like on Saturday and if they go get drunk and carouse and do whatever, as long as they're in church, as long as they pay their tithe, as long as they dress the way that we want them to, then you know what, that's what they count. That is the exact opposite of the way that God feels about it. When you go to preaching on matters of the heart and quit condemning people and judging people over their actions. Now this, again, I'm going to put this in more balance at the end of the week, but this is not to say that there aren't right and wrong things to do. But your actions, they give offense to people 
And so you've got to try and do what's right because you don't want to go around. Matter of fact, it says that exact same thing. I'm never going to get through this if I read that verse. But it says right after this, I think it's verse 13. After it's talked about all of this in liberty, it started out in verse 1. You know, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And this whole chapter is talking about liberty and don't come back into bondage. But then in verse 13, but if you bite and devour one another, be sure that you aren't consumed one of another. In other words, he's telling you you're free. God loves you not based on your actions. He loves you based on whether or not you have received him as your Lord and he looks at your heart and if you are trusting Jesus, then God is pleased with you because of your acceptance of Jesus and not your holiness. But does that mean that you're free to just go live like the devil? No, because you can be devoured one of another. You need to maintain holy and good acts so that you can have a good relationship with other people, so that you can have integrity and people won't be able to criticize you. And also, the scripture says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you go out and start living like the devil, you are going to have consequences. Satan has inroad into your life. And he only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10. So you do need to live holy. But your holiness doesn't change God's attitude towards you. If you are more holy, He doesn't love you more. If you are less holy, He doesn't love you less. But you're just stupid if you aren't living a godly life. But the point I'm trying to get across is God loves you, stupid. He's not mad at you. But you are, you're just giving Satan inroad into your life. You need to live holy. You don't need to criticize people. You need to do the right thing. But it is not so that God will be impressed with you. God accepted Jesus. Jesus paid for everything through His cross. And there is nothing you can do to improve it or nothing you can do to take away from what Jesus has done. God loves you because Jesus... It paid for your sins and wiped it out and you are now accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. You aren't accepted because of your goodness and how good you are. It is totally based on what Jesus did for you. And if you preach that message, that's what causes people to be offended. That the religious person will persecute you for standing completely on what Jesus did and not mixing your goodness with it. They will criticize you. And all of these blogs written about me, I read about four or five of them. My staff thought I ought to see some of them. And I read a few. And, and you know what? Every criticism that they have against me is based on this one thing because I preached the cross, that Jesus paid it all and that I don't have to pay it. That's what all of the persecution... And this is what Paul is saying. He knows because he was a persecutor. And the thing that offended him was he was raised in the Jewish religion that preached you had to do all of these rites. They had so many things. Did you know that the Essens are the people who lived around the Dead Sea and they're the ones that or copied out the scriptures that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? And... Uh, John the Baptist, it says in the, in the Gospels that he was in the desert until the day that he appeared to the Lord. And most scholars believe that he literally went and lived with this community called the Essens, the people that copied out the Scriptures. And they were super 
super religious. And this was the fanatics of their day. I mean, fanatics. Matter of fact, some of the things that I've read about them, did you know that it is actually true, this is not an exaggeration, that the essence would not allow you to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath because it was work. How in the world do you dictate that? But that's how religious they were. It, we see in the scriptures that the Pharisees had counted how many steps you could walk on the Sabbath day before it came work. They called it a Sabbath day's journey. You may not know the, the, uh, what's behind that, but when the scripture talks about it was a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, that means that they had counted how many steps you could walk before you broke the Sabbath and before it came work. They counted how many steps you could take. You had to do all of these rituals. And if you didn't do it, the wrath of God would come upon you. And the number one ritual that characterized... When, you, when people referred to circumcision, it basically was referring to all of the Old Testament law and all of the things that you were commanded to do. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. He's talking about if I was preaching that you have to do things in order for God to move in your life. If I was tying God's love for you to what you do, and He loves you more when you do these things, He loves you less when you do that. He says if that was what I was preaching, then I wouldn't be persecuted. The offense of the cross is that Jesus paid it all. There is nothing that you can add to it. Jesus' blood paid for your sins, not your goodness, not your holiness. Man, that is powerful. Look at this. Let me just quickly try and go through a few of these things. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's talking about the Old Testament law. The average Christian just lumps the whole Word of God together. And the only thing that they notice that is different between the Old Testament and the New Testament is one blank page. And most people just think, well, it's all in the Bible. There's a lot of things in the Bible that you aren't supposed to live by today. And I know that sounds like heresy. But one of them is, it says that if a child curses their parent, you bring them before the elders and they are chastised. And if they do it the second time, you kill them. That's what the Bible says. There's a lot of things. For instance, circumcision. I won't take time to turn over there, but in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis is where God told uh, Abraham about this covenant of circumcision. And he says, the male child that is not circumcised, has to be put to death. I mean, it was non-negotiable. And he said, this is a covenant forever between me and the Jewish nation. It was non-negotiable. Should we kill any person, any male who's not circumcised today? You know, today that's not really an issue. You know why? Because in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, they had a council about this. The Jews 
of course, were all circumcised. But when the Gentiles started becoming into the church, they started preaching that you've got to observe all of these Jewish rites. And there was a huge division in the whole 15th chapter of the book of, of uh, Acts is about Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem and they had a council and they started trying to convince the apostles that we don't have to abide by these Old Testament laws, that Jesus has now fulfilled this and we are accepted with God by faith in the cross, faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus alone and not our act of circumcision and walking so many paces on a Sabbath day and keeping these rituals and feast and etc. And he argued it and the apostles, Peter, James and John, agreed with Paul and they put out a, a deal that you are free from the, from the law. And Paul so answered this question that you know today we don't have a contention over this. But did you know that the same thing exists, it's just now not circumcision. It's people saying... You've got to study the Word. You've got to pray an hour a day. If you commit sin, God won't answer your prayer with any unconfessed sin in your life. Did you know that that's the, that's the exact same thing as saying if you aren't circumcised? God wouldn't... It's the exact same principle. It's just a different act, but it's, it's the same thing. Religion is still alive and well today, and it is contradicting that Jesus paid it all. And this is what he's talking about. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. All of these rules about how you've got to do these things before God will love you is a yoke of bondage. Much of the Old Testament, and this is a radical statement and I know it needs some explanation. I just hadn't got time to do everything I should. But if you just take some of the Old Testament law and try and apply it directly to you, it's bondage. It's a yoke of bondage. It is not for you. You've got to interpret the Old Covenant in light of what Jesus did. There's a difference between the way things were done in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they used to beg God to come down. They said, oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down. And I couldn't tell you how many churches I've been in that pray the exact same thing. I've heard this prayed many times. Rend the heavens and come down. That's an Old Testament prayer. It's wrong for you to pray that way because God rent the heavens and came down through Jesus. And He now lives on the inside of us and you shouldn't pray like an Old Testament saint. David prayed in the 51st chapter of the book of Psalms and he says, Oh Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And there's a great song that people sing all of the time about that. And it is absolutely wrong. People say, well, it's in the Bible. How could it be wrong? Because David wasn't born again. So he didn't have a clean heart. But the scripture in the New Testament teaches that we now have a new heart. And for you to say, oh God, create a new heart in me, you either have to be lost and accepting Jesus as your Savior to pray that, or if you're already born again, you're denying the fact that your heart's already been changed and God lives on the inside of you. And for you to pray, oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, that is a slap in the face of Jesus who promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the earth. You can't pray that kind of prayer. Does that mean that it was wrong then for David? No, it was right for him because he didn't have what we had. Before you got born again, God used to restrain the amount of sin by putting fear in you, similar to the way we do children. 
You know what? Before a child gets to where they can reason and understand everything, you've got to restrain them from doing what's wrong. You've got to establish patterns of doing the right thing and not going over and just hitting people and taking things from them because there's consequences to it. They'll be put in jail. They'll have people hate them. They won't get along with people. And there's all kinds of consequences. But you know what? When they're one year old, how do you convince a one year old of this? If you try and tell them that if you take that toy from your brother or sister, then you're giving place to the devil. God says it's more blessed to give than to receive. So you ought to be giving. And if you don't quit doing this, someday you're going to be caught and you're going to be put in jail. You're going to be penalized for taking things from other people. People aren't going to like you. If you get a job, you won't be able to keep your job. If you get married, they'll divorce you because you're just a self-centered person. You try and tell all that to a one-year-old, they just look at you with a blank stare and they don't understand it. But you know what you can do for a one-year-old? You can tell them, you go take that toy again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not even know that there is a God or a devil or a heaven or a hell. And they may not understand the law and marriage yet and working and all of this. But they understand that, man, I don't want that spanking. And when they have this thought of, go take that thing, they'll say, no. <laughs> they'll resist the devil without even knowing they're resisting the devil. They just don't want the pain that comes as a result. Today, it's not popular to do that, but the Bible says if you don't chasten your son by times, you hate him. You're hurting your children if you just wait and let them evolve and work things out on their own. That's the reason we have so many people messed up today. It is a godly thing to correct your child, but it's only temporary. You don't want them 20 years old saying, is my dad around? Is he going to spank me if I do this? If that's the way your child is at 20 years old or 30 years old, they've missed the point. It's just a temporary way of dealing with things. But you do do that in a similar way before we got born again, before we could be changed on the inside and have our nature lead us to do these things because we've been changed in our heart. Therefore, before that time... In the Old Testament, God used fear. You go out here and if you don't circumcise your children, I'll kill them. You go out here and sash your parents the second time, kill them. You know, some people think that, man, it was harsh in the Old Testament. God changed. No, God's the same. But you know what? We've changed. An Old Testament person couldn't be delivered from demons. And in the Old Testament, it was commonplace for people to have sex with animals. Bestiality was the rule of the day. And that's the reason God said, when you go in, kill the men, the women, the children, and the animals. Some people think, man, God is such a mean God. It was actually mercy because these people were demon-possessed. You couldn't be delivered before Jesus came and brought in the authority of the believer and gave us authority over the devil. And it was like a cancer or something was in society. And once a person gave themselves over to bestiality and homosexuality, they were so demon-possessed that there was no deliverance for them. All they were going to be was like a cancer that just infected other people. And it may have been judgment on them, but it was actually an act of mercy on the human race as a whole to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it would have polluted the entire human race. And so you see wrath and punishment in the Old Testament because that was the way it had to be dealt with. 
It's similar to when you have some part of your body with cancer. And they go in and they cut that part off. And eliminate it. And then treat you with radiation and kill it. It's terrible. It hurts. It makes your hair fall out. It makes you sick. You can't eat. You lose weight. All kinds of bad things happen. But it's an attempt to get rid of that cancer that's destroying your whole body. It's better to lose a part of your body than it is to die. Likewise, that's the way God had to deal with sin in the Old Testament because we didn't understand spiritual things. I'm saying a lot of things here that are, could go into a lot more detail. But this is a powerful revelation. God is love. He was love in the Old Testament. But he was harsh on sin because sin was killing and destroying the human race and we didn't know it. And God had to do something to limit the amount of sin until Jesus came. This is exactly the wording of Galatians chapter 3. Until faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto uh, faith by this schoolmaster. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the law. I've just paraphrased exactly what Galatians chapter 3 says. The Lord was harsh on sin. And the sad thing is most Christians have taken this attitude that was given without understanding the real reason for it. It would be similar to a child that their parents spanked them and the child just says, my parent must hate me because they hit me. They made me hurt. And they don't understand that that parent did that to save that child's life. But a child could misunderstand it. We misunderstood why God was harsh on sin and was so restrictive. It was because He loved us and sin was destroying us and God had to do something to turn us from sin. Before we could understand spiritual things, the only thing we could understand is do this and bam, here's the wrath of God. A carnal person can understand that. And so God did that under the Old Covenant. And if you just take this Old Covenant and try and live under today, you're living under a yoke of bondage. It's not the way that God intended us to live. In the New Covenant, He gave us a new heart. He's changed our want to. And if you would find out how much God loves you and who you are in Christ, and if you would get a revelation of these things, you would live holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. It's your nature to live holy now. And instead of doing it because, man, I'm afraid God's not going to answer my prayer. God won't bless me. God won't do this. Now we should do it because, Father, you love me. You, have, you are so great. You've paid for all of my sins. And now I live holy, not in order to get God's blessing, but I am so thankful for what God has done for me. I live holy now out of love for Him, not out of fear of Him. Boy, these are major things. You know, I was going to cover many, many scriptures, and I'm just not making much progress. <laughs> Let me share one verse with you out of Hebrews chapter 12. This goes along with what I've been saying. I know some of you are thinking, hey, what about this verse in Hebrews chapter 12? I believe it's around verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. It's verse 14. But verse 13 says, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And I've had people lots of times, Man, if you aren't holy, you'll never see the Lord. 
you'll never know God. You, you can't have a relationship. You won't have God move in your life, etc., etc., etc. You know, if you take this in context, the verses in front of this are talking about chastisement and people that God chastises. There's a difference between chastisement and punishment. God doesn't punish us as believers, but He will correct you. And He doesn't correct you with sickness and with disease and with poverty and death. He corrects you with the Word. It says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by God. It's either 1st or 2nd Corinthians 3, 16. Where is it? 2nd Timothy. 2nd Timothy. Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, that's talking about correction or chastisement, that the man of God, verse 17, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. You don't have to have sickness and disease and tragedy and hurt and pain and all of these things. That's not how God chastens His people. Again, I use that example of a child. There is a right way to spank a child. That's on the bottom. God gave you extra padding just for that purpose. You don't chasten your child by slapping them in the face or hitting them with a two-before there's a right and a wrong way to correct. God corrects through His Word, not through sickness and disease and hurt and pain and stuff like this. That is not God. It's important that you understand the difference because the Bible says you have to resist the devil for him to flee from you. And if Satan can get you to thinking that these negative things are from God, then you won't resist them. You'll embrace them and you allow Satan to do his work in your life. You've got to understand what is of God and what is of the devil? And sickness and disease and all of this tragedy is not God punishing you. So the context of this is talking about when God chastens you, when you're being corrected by God, and He said in verse 13, "...and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed." This is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And He's saying, in other words, live holy, act right, so that people who are looking at you for direction will be healed. They will have a good example. They'll be blessed by you instead of turned away. In other words, here you are preaching that, man, God loves me, and you're out just living in sin and doing things. And you know what? You uh, are just encouraging other people to do that. He's, he's saying just the opposite. Don't do that. And then in verse 14, follow peace with all men. This is talking about having positive relationships. Don't bite and devour says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So the verse in front, the verse after, verse 15, is talking about living holy as an example unto people. And when he says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord, this isn't talking about your holiness, that God responds to you based on your holiness. This is talking about that if you don't live holy, how are people going to see the Lord in you? How are people going to recognize that you are speaking from the Lord? One of the things that allows people to recognize that you do have the blessing and the anointing of God in your life is because it produces holy living. This is not talking about your holiness allows you to see the Lord. This is talking about your holiness allows other people to see the Lord in you and inspires them to respond and to follow you because they can see God in you. Again, this is a totally different mindset. Most people think that you have to be holy to have God move in your life. 
I'm here to tell you, God hasn't had anybody qualified working for Him yet, and you aren't going to be the first one. God's never had anybody who deserved anything good, and you aren't the first one. And if you're offended by that and saying, but you don't know how good I am, then you don't know what Jesus paid. You just think He paid a portion. He just made up your deficit. But you at your very best, did you know your goodness is no good? Your goodness is bad. You might think, oh, I'm really a pretty good person. And compared to me or somebody else, you might be. But compared to what God intended you to be, there is nothing good in you. And this is what the law did. The law pointed your attention towards your failures. It says in Romans chapter 3, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament, I believe it's around verse 13 somewhere, it says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks God. There is none good. All of us have turned aside. In Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned unto our own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. If you're thinking, I'm a pretty good person, and I don't need as much grace as somebody else, I only need a portion of grace because I was fairly good. I just need a few things forgiven. Then you are the enemy of the cross. You are against Jesus as paying it all. You're just appropriating a little bit. And you're the very person that winds up persecuting those who preach grace. Man, there's so much to say. In verse 2, this is back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. I've only got a few minutes here. I'll go as far as I can. I don't quit. I don't ever finish. I just quit. We start again. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And you know what's amazing about this? Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was circumcised. And he says, if you're circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. So you can tell by his own life that it's not the physical act that is wrong. It's whether or not you put your trust in these things that you do that makes it right or wrong. Jesus did a similar thing in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark when he says, um, I forget the exact... Wording. Let me just read this to you. In Mark chapter 10, he was talking to the rich young ruler and told him to sell everything he had. And he wouldn't do it and he went away sorrowful. And here's what he told his disciples. He said in verse 23, Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? How hard is it for those who have money, riches, to enter into the kingdom of God? You know what, you may not consider yourself rich, but that's because you watch commercials that are presenting the American lifestyle and stuff. If you compare yourself to 90% of the people alive on this earth, you are filthy, stinking rich. Some of you are thinking, oh, you don't know the car I drive is a mess. Most people in the world don't drive a car. Man, my shoes have holes in them. I could show you lots of people I've seen that don't have shoes. You are rich. So if this is just saying that if you have money, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. What a radical statement. 
And his disciples, that's exactly the way they took it in the next verse. His disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus clarified it by saying again, He said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom? It's not money that's the problem. It's not whether you have money. It's whether or not money has you. Is money your God? It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. There's some people sitting here who would never bow down to an idol. You would never burn incense to an idol, but you are covetous to the max. It's idolatry. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm just saying that, see, we think that we're okay and we're, we've got it all together. Man, there, there's things wrong in our life. And it's because we compare ourselves. Things that used to be wrong 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are now accepted and promoted. But God doesn't change. Society changes. Your level of consciousness changes, but God's standard never changes. And so going back, see, this is what Paul said. He says, if you are circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. That could be interpreted in the strictest sense that any person who's circumcised could not have a relationship with God. Jesus doesn't profit them. But you can look at Paul's own life and tell that's not what he's talking about. In the next verse it says, For verily, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. You can't just pick and choose. You know, it always amazes me, people who say that you've got to be holy. When you start talking to them, say, all right, so what is holy? Well, they'll start saying, well, you can't, do, you can't be perfect, so you just have to do certain things. You know, you can't uh, commit adultery, you can't lie, you can't murder, you can't steal. And they will have, you know, the Catholic Church calls them cardinal sins. Sins that are bad, that, that ruin you. But then there's acceptable sins. There is no such thing as an acceptable sin. James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of the entire law. This is what this is saying. Every man who is trusting in their circumcision, or you could say in your religious acts, on the things that you have to do, you have to keep them all. You can't just keep more than somebody else. You've either got to keep them all perfectly, or if you miss one out of a hundred, eh, you failed. Amen? Rejection. It's like if you had a glass in front of me and you. It doesn't matter if you shoot a little BB through it and make a small hole or if you drive a truck through it. If you break it, the whole thing has to be replaced. God's standard may have 10,000 different commands and you might keep 999 or whatever, but if you break one, you become guilty of breaking the entire thing. You can't stand before God based on your own goodness. And when you try and relate to God based on your performance, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is a master of condemnation. And the law is what he uses to condemn us. And if you are trying to do enough to please God and say, Oh God, now will you move in my life? I guarantee you, Satan's got you. Because you may be better than you've ever been. You might be better than I've been. But I can guarantee you, you aren't perfect. And Satan knows how to find that one thing that you did and make you condemned and you will never feel pleasure. 
There are some of you that won't let God love you. God loves you, but you don't let God love you because you don't feel worthy. You just can't understand how Almighty God could love you because you don't love you. Other people don't love you. You've done things wrong, and you don't let God love you. But the truth is, God loves you in spite of who you are. It's not based on anything that you do. If you are trying to keep some ritual, then that makes you condemned because you've got to keep them all, and none of you can do it. If I thought that you had to be perfect to either have relationship with God or if you're already born again to maintain your relationship and you never could do anything wrong, well, then the moment you got born again, I'd just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. It's just to kill you right then. Because I can guarantee you, you are going to fail. And you can't confess every single sin and keep it all confessed. There's not only sins that you do that are wrong and break a command, but you do things that you fail to do what God told you to do. All of us fail to be the husband to our wife and love her as perfectly as we should. Every woman in here fails to reverence her husband the way that you, the church is meant to reverence Christ. Every one of us in here fails to love other people as much as we should. Nobody in here does everything right anytime, ever. And you're going to come under all of that guilt and condemnation. In verse 4, I used this last night. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. See, again, Paul, he was circumcised. So Paul did some of these things, but he didn't look to any of the things he did as making him justified in right standing with God. He did them for his own discipline. He did them as a rejection of the devil. He did them in, in response to what the Lord had done, but not in order to get a response. He didn't put his faith in those things. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach grace. Because if I was preaching all of this, and yet I was out living in sin, and I was a homosexual, and I was stealing money, and I'd lie and steal, and I'd do all of these things, you know what, people would criticize me and say, yeah, the reason you preach this is just to indulge your lifestyle. But the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly get a revelation of what Jesus has done for you and that He paid it all, it makes you love Him so much when you understand the grace of God that you serve God more through grace than you do through fear. The legalists cannot understand this. They don't, they don't do anything through love. They do it all because they're forced to do it. They don't understand being motivated by love. But when you really understand this, you serve God by love. And so I'm saying that you can't sit here and point at me and say, I know why you preach grace, because, man, you just go live like the devil, and it excuses your actions. You know, I, I live as holy as any person in here. I live holier than most people in here. I spend more time praying, studying the Word. I do, my actions are better than most people. But I don't put any faith in that. That doesn't give me a step up on God. I have to come just the same as anybody else and pray and say, in the name of Jesus. I can't pray in the name of Andrew Womack. If I got what I deserved, we'd both be in trouble. But I do live holy. You can't accuse me 
of doing these things. And so I'm an example that grace does not lead you into sin. This whole argument that the legalist has against preaching on grace, they say people are just going to go live in sin. You're just giving people a license to sin. I always say they're doing pretty good without a license. <laughs> preaching grace doesn't make people go sin. You know, a friend of mine, he got to preaching on that God loves you in spite of what you do. So quit being a hypocrite. And if you have a problem in your life, just be honest about it. That's the first step to overcoming it. And he started preaching, God loves you if you smoke. He told him specifically, he says, you don't go to hell for smoking. You'll smell like you've been there, but you do not go to hell if you smoke. And he told those people that. Did you know that the very next Sunday... Many of the men were out there in front of the church smoking. And people came up to him and said, See, Pastor, what you're preaching on grace did. Look at all the people now that are smoking. And he said, Go talk to them and ask them, Did they start smoking since I preached that message last week? Or did they just quit being a hypocrite about it and hiding it? There wasn't a single one of them that started smoking but they quit being condemned about it. And did you know that many of them got set free because now they weren't under the condemnation that kept them captive over it. And they were able to get free from it. Preaching grace does not cause people to go live in sin. It'll break the dominion of sin. It says in Romans chapter 6, I believe it's verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace. The thing that sets you free from the dominion of sin is grace, not law. Law will strengthen sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I believe it's verse 56. The strength of sin is the law. The law actually binds you to sin. The thing that sets you free from sin is the grace of God. And again, this is counterintuitive. Many of you, this is completely contrary to our religious training. And many people are just going to think that I'm indulging sin. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that God has paid for my sin. He loves me completely separate from my performance. And if I am seeking to be justified by the law, that means I'm preaching that unless you're water baptized, you can't be saved. Unless you come to church and do this, you can't be saved. Unless you read so much Bible every day, He won't answer your prayers. If you got any sin in your life, God won't hear the prayer of a sinner. If any of those things you're embracing, then Christ is profiting you nothing. You have made Christ the cross of none effect by you trusting in yourself. Those are strong statements, but that is at the root of all of Satan's attacks. Satan can't condemn Jesus. There's nothing to condemn. Jesus is perfect. So he doesn't tell you, oh, Jesus isn't good enough. Jesus doesn't have the power. Jesus can't do that. That's not the way that Satan accuses you. He comes, he's the accuser of the brethren. He comes at you and starts pointing out your sins. And the only reason he gains any traction with that is because of the misconception that if I have any sin in my life, God won't answer my prayer. God won't use me. It's that wrong thinking that allows the condemnation to come. But if you understood that it's all the cross, I've been forgiven, I'm free from this, and it doesn't matter whether I'm holy or not. It does matter as far as Satan coming into my life 
It does matter as far as me offending people and people coming against me, but as far as God, God loves me in spite of who I am. If you understood that, then Satan, when he starts condemning you, you could say, oh, isn't that true? I am a mess. But you know, praise God for the cross. Praise God that it's not based on what I do and you just stand in the grace of God and you wouldn't miss out on the blessings of God. But most of us, the moment Satan shows you something wrong in your life, you cave and you say, oh, I knew that I wasn't... I know it was bound to be my fault. And oh, God, for, and you wait until you overcome that problem before you have any faith that God's going to answer your prayer. But the problem is, as soon as you overcome that problem... He'll point you another problem. You're never going to get to where you don't have problems. Some of you think, well, I don't have any problems. Well, the way you're thinking about me is not right. <laughs> Some of you, the nasty things you've thought about me since I've been preaching here tonight is not right. Whether you like me or not, I am born again, and I'm a son of the Lord Jesus, and you shouldn't be thinking those nasty things about me. I'm liable to be your neighbor in heaven and you will have to live together for eternity. Man, I could just go on and on. I'm going to have to stop. But brothers and sisters, it's the cross, the atonement that Jesus paid it all. That's what's offensive. And you know why it's offensive? I was a legalist. I was a holy person, trusting in my holiness and looking down my nose and criticizing other people that weren't as holy as me. And when I first heard grace, it offended me that all of my goodness and my holiness and my separation from things didn't give me any extra pull with God over this person over here who wasn't living holy. It offended me. It made me think like, you mean all of that was for nothing? Which isn't true because it did. I don't have some of the hang-ups and the memories and the shame that I've had to deal with that other people have, there was benefit to living holy, but as far as God's concerned, it didn't give me any extra pull with God. And I was offended. It just really offended me. I remember when I got back from Vietnam, I went and saw a chaplain that this, my best friend, he was his chaplain in the army, and he was spirit-filled, tongue-talking. This is before I was speaking in tongues and I was hungry. I was wanting somebody to pray for me. And I went to visit this guy in Washington, D.C. We took a trip in a Volkswagen all the way to Washington, D.C. and camped along the road because I was so hungry to find somebody who was spirit-filled and spoke in tongues. And I wanted to know about this. And I went in and visited this guy, and when we walked in, he was sitting there with his collar turned around backwards, which offended me. And he was drinking wine and smoking a cigarette. And I said, this guy hadn't got anything to offer me. He's unholy. And you know what? I don't advocate those things. I, I think you're better off without smoking. You're the temple of the Lord. You shouldn't trash it. So I'm not advocating those things, but you know what? God loved him, and he was spirit-filled, and he was talking in tongues, but I wouldn't listen to a thing he said because, man, I wasn't nobody who smoked or drank could tell me anything. I was beyond that. Religious Pharisee. And it offended me because he was trusting in Jesus. 
and not in his goodness. And man, I just couldn't understand that. Praise God. Man, if I hadn't ruffled your feathers tonight, I don't know what it takes. <laughs> and I know some of you have questions about, so man, you can just go do anything and God loves you. Well, yeah, God loves you in spite of what you do, but you're just plain stupid if you go live in sin. You're just stupid. You could go, you could go smoke dope. God loves you, but you're just stupid. You can go out and be mean and criticize people, and God will still love you, but I guarantee you, you're going to suffer for your mean attitude and your criticism and stuff, and people are going to dislike you, and you will be punished, and you might be divorced, and all kinds of things will happen. But God still loves you. You can be in your prison cell, and God will love you and tell you that you're the righteousness of God and that He's pleased with you, and you can enjoy Him in your prison cell awaiting execution. And God still loves you, but it's just stupid. Why would you want to live that way? Amen? I believe in holiness, but not in order that I can see God. It's so that other people can see God in me. And so that I don't give Satan an inroad into my life. Father, I love you, and I thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for these truths. And Father, I pray that people who are trusting in their goodness would take their eyes off of themselves, quit looking on the exterior, and go to looking at who they are in Christ. And they, they would accept righteousness, right standing with you, based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, not what we do for the Lord now. I stand against this guilt and condemnation. And we've shared the truth tonight. And I believe that the truth is setting people free. There are people right now that you've lived under guilt and condemnation. You've believed God exists and God has power. You just wouldn't believe that He would use that power on your behalf because you weren't worthy. And you've been working at, at hard trying to become worthy. You just need to humble yourself and quit trying to earn it and receive it as a gift. I believe that right now God is setting people free from guilt and condemnation. Some of you that you just focus on every minute thing that's wrong in your life. You need to quit looking at yourself and go to looking at the atonement that was made for you and what Jesus did. Take your attention off of yourself and put it on God and what He's done for you. I believe that God is setting people free tonight. Father, we just thank you for our freedom from the law, this yoke of bondage that it's not going to dominate us. And Father, we thank you for it. Father, help us to receive this message of grace and to understand it and apply it to our life. And we thank you and agree and receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you've understood what I've talked about... You should just be rejoicing. Thank you, Jesus. But let me warn you that you go out with this joy and you think everybody will be as excited as you are. You have just now started the offense of the cross in your life. You are going to be scandalized. Scandalon. This message of grace will cause people to criticize. But praise God, you can win them over with love.
I guess you need to go get your kids. Praise God. If you got kids over there, you need to go get them. Again, I'd like to offer if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus personally, maybe some of you have been in church and in religion trying to be good enough and thinking that someday God's going to accept me because I'm doing all of the right things. You know, I'm convinced that there's lots of people in religion, in churches today, who aren't truly born again. They believe that God exists. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They would fight you over the Bible being the truth of the Word of God. They look like Christians. They would call themselves a Christian. But push comes to shove, they are trusting their actions and relating to what they do to produce their salvation. They aren't trusting Jesus alone. They may think He's a part of the equation, but they aren't trusting Him alone. That is not true salvation. And there may be somebody in here tonight who is really trusting in your own goodness and you've never really accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. I believe there's millions of quote-unquote Christians, moral people, who aren't truly born again because their faith is in themselves and not in the Savior. You need to be born again. And somebody might think, man, I'd be embarrassed to think that I've been in the church for five years or ten years and yet I've never really put my faith in Jesus. I just don't want to admit that. Man, that's not smart. It would be better to humble yourself and receive this salvation than to just go ahead and profess something that you don't pro pro uh, possess because you're afraid of what people would think. Man, if you haven't really put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you need to receive salvation. And if you've been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. It includes a lot more than that, but it includes speaking in tongues. If you don't do that, you need to receive this gift of speaking in tongues. And I promise you that the things I've talked about tonight are against your normal way of thinking. You need the quickening power of the Holy Spirit to be able to receive this. It's a revelation. It is not something I can argue you into. It has to come by revelation. And the Holy Spirit is the number one way that that revelation comes. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Is there anybody in here tonight who would say, I need one or both of those. Either I need to make Jesus my Lord and trust Him completely for my salvation and or I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anyone? Here's one over here. Anybody else? We've already had, I think it's, I forgot what it was, 60 or 70 people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and about, I think it was nine that have received salvation. But man, I don't want to miss anybody. Had half the crowd go after their kids. If you're watching by the internet tonight, you know what? You can still receive the Holy Spirit and you can receive salvation. If you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just come down here and let me pray with you? We want to make sure and help you to receive salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just come right down here and let me pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Are you born again? Have you
you made Jesus your personal Lord, trusted Him, you have. So you're coming to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that what you're doing? Speak in tongues? Amen. Good deal. How about you? Are you born again? So you just want the baptism of the Holy Spirit and His gift of speaking in tongues. Awesome. How about you? Are you born again? So you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. We'll pray with you tonight. Praise God. How about you? You born again? Awesome. Well, then according to the Bible, every one of you is already the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible says. So in your born again spirit, God created you to fill with His Holy Spirit. So you don't have to beg and, and plead. And it's like I was teaching tonight. You don't have to worry about if I've done something wrong. Am I holy? If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. If you got problems in your life, it makes you a prime candidate for the power of God. He wants to fill you with His Spirit. So we're just going to ask. We aren't going to beg. And then I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. And they're going to stand behind you. And after I lead you in a prayer where we just open up our heart and welcome the Holy Spirit to come in, then they're going to lay hands on you and release this power into you. Because the Bible says through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit is given. Amen. So we're going to ask. They're going to lay hands on you. And then I want you to start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Quit asking and start thanking that He's done it. And then we're going to start speaking in tongues. And as we speak in tongues, you start speaking with us. It's going to be that simple. He's going to fill you and then we're just going to release this power. I need somebody to stand behind this brother and pray with him. Amen. So y'all ready? It's really simple. Nothing to it. Don't worry about what it sounds like. People get to listening to themselves and thinking, is that really a language? You know, there are known languages. The Wycliffe translators have tried to translate the Bible into this language that is nothing but clicks of the tongue. That's a language. There's another language that's whistles. And they tried to translate the Bible into whistles. Don't worry about what it sounds like. There are known languages that I guarantee you is going to sound worse than your tongue. So quit listening to yourself and just worship God and it doesn't matter what it sounds like. And when you quit thinking about yourself, you'll find out it just flows through you and things will work. And I've got a book I'll give you that will explain this whole thing and it'll help you. Y'all ready? You ready? Amen. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer and I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you that they are already born again. So according to the Word of God, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We just open up this temple right now. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into these lives. We want your power. We want this gift of speaking in tongues where our spirit releases you without our understanding, bypassing our doubt and our unbelief. Father, we want this and we ask you for it. Open up our hearts right now. We lay hands on you and say, Receive the Holy Spirit right now in the name of the Lord Jesus. We loose this power to flow into your life. Praise God, brother. That's the power of the Lord. We release this power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to flow through these right now. And Father, we thank you that your power and anointing comes upon every one of these in Jesus' name. 
Now I want you to begin to start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Just start thanking Him. Lift up your hands like this, like when somebody sticks a gun in your back. It's a way of saying, I surrender, I yield. Father, we thank You for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank You that I am filled with Your power because Your Word says You give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We asked and we believe we have Your Spirit. And so we thank You for it right now in the name of Jesus. Now those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's start praying in tongues right now and worship the Lord. And as we speak in tongues, you just speak with us. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You've got to start speaking. You've got to start making sounds and believe that the Holy Spirit is inspiring you. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what the person behind you is saying. But your tongue will be different than theirs. It'll come out different. And when it comes out different, just keep talking. Don't quit. Just keep going. Let's everybody just worship the Lord by speaking in your prayer language right now. Just speak right now. Don't be bashful. Be bold. Talk out. Quit listening to yourself and focus on the Lord. Worship Him. That's it. Just speak, brother. Here's the power of the Holy Ghost. See this young man speaking in tongues. Here they are speaking in tongues. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we release your power by praying in this language that you give us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Praise the Lord. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But you know what? It's important that you understand what happened to you. This is the most important thing that has happened to you since you got born again. You may or may not really understand that or feel it right now. But it's really powerful. But to get the full impact, you've got to understand it. Also, if you didn't speak in tongues or if you had trouble speaking in tongues, you need to get those questions answered. And I've written a book that will explain the whole thing and I'd like to give it to you. And I promise you, if you read this book, it'll answer some questions and it'll help you. But I believe you're all going to be stronger than horseradish after this. Amen. Amen. I believe the power of God's coming in your life. So if you would, just follow Robert right here. He's the one with his Bible up. And we've got a room right back here where they'll give you the book and they'll also answer any questions that you have. Let's praise God for these. Amen. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Awesome. You know, this says a lot about the people that are at this conference. Either all of the people that needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit had to go pick up their children. But at most of my conferences, when we have this many people, we'll have 100 to 200 people come forward for the baptism of the Holy Spirit per night. And so that means that most of you that are here have already been touched. You've already received. You're already well on your way. And I just think that's awesome. And you know, if you already have the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that this revelation became strong in my life, of course, it's the Word of God. There is no substitute for learning the truth and hearing the Word of God. That's absolutely essential. 
But I would take scriptures that just were contrary to everything I'd ever been taught. And I would spend hours praying in tongues and saying, Father, how does this work? What does this mean? And the Holy Spirit would interpret things to me. For six months, I wrote down at least two or three hundred scriptures a day that I knew were so opposite what I'd been taught, but I knew it was real. And I'd write them out longhand, and then I'd go get in a closet physically and push the shoes out of the way and pray in tongues for two or three hours. I did that every day for six months. And for a while, it didn't look like anything. I felt like something was happening, but I couldn't have explained it to you. And then in one week's time, it's like an atomic bomb went off on the inside of me. And I saw it. I got it. And I've been working off that revelation. It's like I got the outline and God's now giving me the details and the colors and stuff. And so I'm getting more revelation. But I got the basic revelation in one week after praying in tongues every day for six months, saying, God, what does this mean? I tell you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for you understanding and receiving this message of grace. Amen? Praise the Lord. I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to stand down here. And if any of you need prayer, we've already prayed with people twice already. Hopefully, you've already gotten prayer. But if there's anybody here tonight who needs prayer for anything, these are our prayer ministers. And they're people that have been taught how to pray, not to beg, but to take their authority and just speak the Word of God. And if you need prayer for anything, I'd like to ask you to come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers pray with you. If that's you, if you need prayer for anything, just get up out of your seat and come forward right now and let us agree. I prayed with at least a dozen people before the service tonight who said that they needed prayer. And I know that that's not all that there were. Some of you may think I'm the only one that can pray, but it's not true. Amen. You need to put your faith in Jesus and quit looking to people. I've taught tonight that I don't, it's not my holiness. You need to come and look to Jesus and just get agreement from somebody. So if you need prayer, I want you to come forward right now and let someone agree with you and pray with you. Amen. The rest of you. God bless you. Don't forget that we have the three services that we've already had. They're already duplicated on CD and DVD. And they're out there. You can pick them up. Also, I've probably got over a hundred hours worth of teaching on what I talked about tonight. Preaching this from different directions. I've got a series entitled The True Nature of God. The Law is Not a Faith. Just a bunch of stuff on this. So anyway, please go back and help yourself. God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll be back at 9 o'clock in the morning. Remember that tomorrow we have our barbecue, so if you'd like to participate, or if you've already signed up for that, make sure and make plans to be with us tomorrow. You're dismissed.